As I was watching the new members standing up here, I was thinking about this Wednesday, I drove to Gypsy, which is where I grew up. I drove past the little church where I uh, trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I visited a lady who's like a second mom to me, and she said that on worship weekends, uh, they have about 10 people in church. And uh, there was only about 30 or 40 whenever I was growing up, but the church has dwindled. And uh, the, thing, the reason I'm sharing this is 23 people became members of New Life during COVID. I mean, that's an amazing thing to me. I, I, I appreciate all of you who did that, but a lot of you who are here have been around for a long time. Uh, not, not longer than 20 years, that's as long as New Life's been in existence. You know, uh, Gypsy Christian Church has been around since the 1880s, um, and it's still serving Jesus. And there's actually a man who owns a lumber yard who's their preacher now, and Larry Nickel is his name. I stopped in Hillsdale, PA, which is where his lumber yard is, to thank him that because of him, there is still the possibility that people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ in the little town of Gypsy, Pennsylvania, when they come to worship. All around the world, we are called to be faithful to Jesus until he returns. And this series, if you're new, we're in a series, it's three weeks in, it's called Prepare the Way. And the first week, two weeks ago, I kicked it off by talking about preparing our hearts for Jesus to return. You see, this is what we call the Advent season, the Christmas season. Advent means coming, and a lot of folks just think about Jesus' first coming. And we sang about that in these songs that we sang. He came as a baby in a manger. You know, he grew up, though. He became the man of God, the son of God, who died after living a perfect life and rose from the dead. He returned to heaven, and he promised something. I'm coming back. I'm going to come back and establish my eternal reign really over the universe. And he's going to do that. And so first week we said we need to prepare our hearts. Individually, we need to get ready for that. And then last week, Pastor Barry offered a very challenging message about preparing our homes. And he wasn't talking about necessarily decorating our homes, which is fine. That's something that we all probably do during this season of year. But what he talked about was opening our home in hospitality. And he shared with us that hospitality in the Greek literally means to welcome the stranger. And that as we do that, welcoming people into our homes who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, they can come to understand who he is and what it means to follow him. And they and we, in the process, are better prepared for his return. So today, we're going to expand our focus to our communities, prepare our communities. To do that, we need to understand what is a community. And so dictionary.com defines community as a social group of any size whose members reside in a specific locality, share government, and often have a common cultural and historical heritage. By that definition, Saxonburg is a community. Now, in America, one thing that's unusual, maybe, I don't know, because I've only lived in America, I think it's maybe just for America, but Communities aren't just those local places where there's a geographic boundary, but for example, this is called Saxonburg for mailing purposes, 139 Knock Road, Saxonburg, PA. But we're not in Saxonburg. The reason I know that is if something happens right now, the Saxonburg police won't come because it's outside of their boundaries. I'm not complaining, I'm just saying that's the way it is. 
So I'm going down a little rabbit trail here to show you something about communities. And it's this. A community can be both more and less than a social group of any size whose members reside in a specific locality, share government, and often have a common cultural and historical heritage. For example, some would consider Freeport, Knock, Highlands, Mars school districts as communities. And yet they have various communities within those communities. So how do we prepare our communities when our New Life Christian Ministries family comes from 50 different zip codes? And that doesn't even include all the folks who watch online and maybe from places around the world. So when we leave this building, when we turn off our computers or our, you know, our iPhones after watching worship, how do we live as communities of, or a community, I should say, of faith in Jesus Christ in all of those different places? And it's a vital question. And our take-home point for the day, and if you're new, the take-home point is the one point that I'm going to be making from the scripture we read that's going to help us to be ready to to answer that question. And here is the take-home point. We can only prepare our communities for Jesus' coming when we live as citizens of heaven. If we are going to prepare our local communities, our geographic communities for Jesus' coming, then the first thing we have to understand is that Jesus comes first in our lives. We serve him before anything else. Over the past 20 months or so, many Christians, I believe, have forgotten that our first citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is our king, and he's not just our king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. But, but since the COVID pandemic began, um, the news has been the focus on that. And we might have viewed ourselves as Americans first, or maybe as Pennsylvanians first, or maybe as Saxonburgers first. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. Instead of viewing first citizens of kingdom of heaven, we've said, no, let's let's first start with American or let's start with Pennsylvania. Let's debate and argue about what it means to live as citizens of these kingdoms. But the expression citizen of heaven comes from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a place called Philippi. It was a local place in the ancient Roman Empire, and he wrote to them and talked to them about being citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven. So before we turn to Philippians 3, let's pray one more time. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are ultimately citizens of your kingdom if Jesus is Savior and Lord in our lives. And that not only today, but forever, we are going to be citizens of that kingdom. And one day, you will establish that kingdom forever when Jesus returns. God, we pray today as we read these words that they won't just be words to us, but they will move us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live lives that demonstrate our citizenship, our first and primary citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, we're going to be in Philippians 3, 17 and following, and you can follow along. It'll also be up on the screen. But before we turn there, I want to remind you the context. Paul has been writing to the Philippians about the Judaizers. Now, if you came last summer, we spent the whole summer going through the letter to the Galatians, and we found out who the Judaizers were. They were a group of people that came in everywhere Paul preached, whatever city or town or locality, whatever community Paul preached, they came in and they said, Paul isn't exactly right. You see, you not only have to follow Jesus, but first, you have to follow the Jewish law. Now, when... Paul was writing to the Philippians, what he said was this, look, these people say they're Jews. Well, I'm a Jew. 
Not only am I a Jew, I'm a Pharisee. Not only am I a Pharisee, but I can trace my family background all the way back to Benjamin, one of the 12 original tribes of Israel. Not only that, but when it came to following the Mosaic law, I was perfect. He actually says that. I I was faultless in following the law. Now, after all of that, after giving his pedigree as a Jew, here's what he says. I don't care. It's rubbish. All that's rubbish. He said, I have something more important in mind. And this is what he wrote in Philippians 3, 13b and 14. He said, forgetting the past, so all that stuff about being a Pharisee, being a Jew, being a Benjamite, all of that, he says, and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So remember, we were told that a community often has a common cultural and historical background. What Paul was telling the Philippians is, look, you're Gentiles. That means you're non-Jews by background. And I want you to know something. You don't have to carry the cultural and historical baggage of the Jews to follow Jesus. And the reason I share that is because some of us need to let go of some of the cultural and um, historical baggage that we carry by being Americans. In this age in particular, in this time when we are looking and focusing on being citizens of heaven and a return of Jesus. So, the community of Jesus followers, I want, you to, I want to sort of define that for us, is within our local communities is the most important community for all of us. You know why? Because it's eternal. It's going to last forever. One day, Saxonburg, even though it's a pretty old town here in America, it's going to be gone. One day, you know, you could think of the oldest town. Was it Fort Augustine in Florida? Oldest town in America. One day it's going to be gone. But it will never, never, ever, ever come a time when the community of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, will be gone. So Paul moved on to telling the Philippian believers what it looks like to be part of that community, his community, the community of Jesus. And so he writes these words, and these words are true in every time and in every place. It says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. So what Jesus' community is, it's not so much a place as it is a way of life. And what Paul said is, look at me. That's an interesting thing. Paul did this everywhere he went. In fact, in Corinth, he said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But here he just says, look at me. Look how I live. It's not about beliefs. It's about living what you do. In fact, Jesus would say the same thing. And when Paul writes these words, what he's saying is, I'm not talking about a geographic community. I'm talking about a group of people who have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, and now we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And so the citizenship in God's kingdom separates us, not from a geographical area, but separates us from people in the world who are not living in the ways of Jesus. And Paul's going to write some very specific words. We're going to read them right now. And what he's telling us is that we need to be in the world, but not of the world. How can we do that? How can we actually live in the world around us in all of its fallenness and not live like that? Well, it's impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul writes is this. He says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. So notice the reason for Paul's tears. It has nothing to do with beliefs. He's not saying you don't believe the way I believe. What he's saying is the actions. You're Christians. You say you're Christians, but your actions are in opposition 
to the way of Jesus, to the cross of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, John the Baptist, and Paul all saw our actions as the demonstration of our faith, not just our beliefs. So Paul offers us three different actions that are in opposition to Jesus. And here they are. Number one, gluttony. He says their God is their appetite. In the original Greek, it actually says their God is their belly. So that's how they live their life. Not with God as God, but with the idol of gluttony. Secondly, bragging about immoral actions. And thirdly, thinking only about this life. So our focus is only on the here and now. So if this life is all there is, then the old philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, makes perfect sense. But Paul says, this life isn't all there is. There's so much more than this life for all of us. So Paul's focus is always on the prize. It's one of the most important realities for Paul was, I'm always looking forward. I don't care about the past. I sinned in the past. I did a lot of bad things in the past. The past is the past. But I'm looking forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm looking towards. Back in week one, I asked this question. How often do you think about Jesus' return? How often in a day, in a week, in a month, do you think about Jesus coming back? It's such an important question. Paul emphasized that his focus is on the future, on Jesus' return. And that impacts impacted everything about his life. Think about this. If we really believe that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to establish, he's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever, then we need to reverse engineer our lives from that truth to how we're living right now. And it will impact how we eat what we eat. It will impact how we act towards each other and towards those around us. It will act, it will change how we focus. It won't just be on the the here and now, on this little local community where we live or the big community where we live, but it will be on Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus' final commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations become our focus when we realize that one day we're all going to be with him in heaven or separated from him forever. So Paul puts it this way. He says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Citizens of heaven, as we live in community with one another, as brothers and sisters, because of Jesus' lordship and salvation, we demonstrate our new citizenship. Notice what Paul said. He really focused on only two things. He always focused on these two things. He said, Jesus is Lord. That's the first focus. And we wait for him to return as our savior. So Jesus is Lord means owner or master. And when we live that way, it changes how we live in the here and now. And Savior means we've been rescued from our past, from our sin, from all the things before us. So then Paul says, look what's going to happen. He's going to take our weak mortal bodies and we're going to be changed into glorious bodies like his own. Now, I know some of you are, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20. You're probably not worried too much about that. Wait till you get to be 64 and you get up in the morning and you can't hardly tie your shoe. You're looking forward to that, you know, that immortal body, that immortal body that's not going to be weak any longer. It's going to be something to very look forward to. Anyway, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. And so we think about that. And many people at Christmas, that's all they think about is the 2,000 years ago Jesus, the little baby, meek and mild. And we talk about presents. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is how it's almost all about presents in this day and age, as Tim said the other night at the Acoustic Christmas. Um, and, And the reality is, The wise men brought the presents to Jesus. 
But we've changed it into bringing presents for each other right here in the here and now. Again, I'm not against presents. If you want to get me one, that's fine. Okay, <laughs> but, but the point is, the point is, that's the already, but there's a not yet. We live in the time between the times. We think about that, but we need to focus on, as Paul said, the prize that's ahead of us. What's coming ahead is so, so amazing, so incredible that we need to be ready for it. And what Paul says is, we wait confidently as citizens of heaven because we know Jesus is going to return. And we change our local communities by the way we live day by day, week by week, month by month. Over time, our communities change. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to share a letter that was written in the second or third century, back in the time when Christians were being persecuted for their faith, being executed for their faith. They were outcasts. They were, they were looked upon in such a way that, that the average person in society, if you said, I'm a Christian, they would go, they would just like, get away from me. But that didn't happen for very long, as we can see as we read the letter. It's called a, a letter that was addressed, addressed to a guy named Diognetus. Now, we don't know if Diognetus was an actual one person. The name Diognetus in Greek means God-born. So it might have just been addressed so that everybody in society would see how these Christians are living and, and what an impact it's making. But there was an actual guy named Diognetus who was actually the tutor of Marcus Aurelius. So it might have been addressed to him. In any case, the letter is important. It's long. I'm going to tell you before I start reading it. But it's worth hearing and, and really dissecting a little bit because it talks about how Christians who are looking towards heaven impact their everyday world, their local communities, wherever we are. So it says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. So the first thing, let me just stop there. What he's saying is, if you saw a Christian, you wouldn't know that he or she was a Christian by the way they spoke, by the way they dressed, by the way they outwardly appeared to be. In fact, um, the Newman family is going to Quebec to learn French because French is the language of the Ivory Coast. They're going to go to that culture and they want to be able to fit into the culture. It's like with a very, probably the third or fourth mission trip I took to Mexico, I was talking to a guy named William, and William and I were talking, and I said to him, William, you need to learn to speak English. And he looked me square in the eye, and he said, estamos en México. We are in Mexico. You know what he meant? You need to learn Spanish. Um, and, and actually, he went on to say, you know, when I go to America, I'll speak English. When you come here, you speak Spanish. And that's what the Christians in the first, second, third, fourth centuries did. They didn't, they didn't stand out because they spoke a different language or they looked weird. They stood out for a different reason, as we're going to see this in a moment. But it says, so their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner, and life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but they labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. We'll talk more about that. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, 
but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world but their religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done to it, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they have done it any wrong, but because they are opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, It is by the Christians, detained in the world as in a prison, that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place, and Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things, while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecutions. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function, from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. Wow. The, Christ, the author wrote about the Christians who were everyday Christians living in that world. He wasn't talking about pastors and missionaries. He was talking about your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian who lived in any city or any countryside across the Roman Empire. You could, every Christian is what he's talking about. He's not talking about special Christians. He's talking about the average everyday Christian. And as Paul pointed out to the Philippian believers, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. These believers who were scattered around the Roman Empire lived as citizens of heaven first. When they faced persecution, they flourished. When others hated them, they responded with love. When they suffered dishonor, they reflected God's glory. When others defamed them, they lived with truth in love and they let their way of life Vindicate their lives. Let's stop for a moment right now and think about how we have responded over the past 20 or so months as members of the Christian community. As people everywhere were impacted and endured the COVID pandemic and the many governmental responses and mandates associated with it, how have we responded? Have we responded graciously? Have we suffered dishonor and reflected God's glory? Have we lived simple, peaceful lives showing others we are only passing through this life and that we're looking forward to the country and community that is truly its own in heaven. Would a casual observer notice the difference in how we live to the point that they would say we are so beneficial to this culture that we are like the soul to the body? Would that be the natural analogy that came to their minds? As I read the letter to Diognetus for the very first time, I thought this, if Christians in every community across America lived this way, we would experience the greatest revival ever seen. Why do I say that? 
Well, because our conditions are so different from that of the second and third century. Realize this. These folks in the second and third century, they didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the right to speak back to their government. They didn't have the right to do any of those kind of things. They didn't do what the people in their culture did. In fact, they didn't complain about the Roman practice of husbands sharing their wives with each other. They didn't complain about the practice of Roman families taking their unwanted children and putting them on the garbage dump. You know what they did? They got the children off the garbage dump and they raised them in their own families as their own. They brought the children in and showed them the love and the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Christian parents didn't complain about the way the culture was. They just changed the world. One person, one little baby off of a garbage heap at a time. Those daily responses to the Christian communities around the world moved the Roman Empire. Think about this. In 200, 300 A.D., Christians were persecuted, executed. In 316 A.D., Constantine conquered in the name of Jesus. And then he said, it's okay to be a Christian. Christians were accepted. And then by the 400s, 450, 500 A.D., the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion. Such a short period of time for a group of people who were outcasts, aliens, to make a difference. You see, the difference is these Christians were not so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement? Somebody, all they do is sit around and pray all the time. They don't ever get involved in the world. That Christian, he's so heavenly-minded, no earthly good. These Christians were so heavenly-minded, they changed the world because they saw they saw what it means to truly be heavenly-minded. It means to bring the will of God to the earth in the name of Jesus and in the power of of the Holy Spirit. We can learn so much from these early Christians because on the one hand, no one even noticed who they were. If you just saw a Christian walking down the street, you wouldn't know it was a Christian by the way they dressed, by the way they talked, by the way they acted for the most part. But on the other hand, if you saw a Christian and how they lived, it would change your life because you would realize that they were living with a different kind of purpose, a different kind of goal, a different kind of orientation than anybody on the earth. They were truly, truly of, in the world, but not of the world. So as we go through this Christmas season, let's be that kind of light, that kind of salt, as Jesus called us to be, to the people around us in our communities. Let's live so our lives speak the truth and love of Jesus so clearly that our local communities will all be brighter and more richly seasoned as we await Jesus' return and our ultimate living out of our citizenship in heaven. The amazing truth about these early believers is how rapidly, if you think about it, think of history, all, I mean, go back to thousands of years BC to now. 100 years, 200 years isn't that long in the grand scheme of history. But in 200 years, they changed history from being the most hated, the most distrusted, the most disreputable group of people to being the model for how everyone is called to live. You see, Jesus' lordship and the salvation he offered changed these people from the inside out. Remember how we started? Our hearts have to change. And then that changes our families. And then that will change our communities. And then that will change our world. That's God's plan for how we, as the followers of his son Jesus, are to change and transform the world. So Jesus' goal has always been that your life and my life, our lives, individually and together, will impact everyone we know. And again, it doesn't have to be in an outlandish way. You don't have to be a preacher standing up on a stage in a church. It just means you have to follow Jesus 
And, and as Paul said, imitate the way I live. Imitate the way Paul lived as we live out our life every day. You see, it's never been easy to be a Christian. No time in history has it been easy. It's not, not always been welcomed. In fact, many places in the world today, you can die just because you bear the name of Jesus. Still that way in the world around us. And yet, everywhere that believers have lived the faith in their communities, eventually, those communities became part of the greater community of Jesus Christ. And that's why today's next step is simple. I will live as a citizen of heaven this week. I will live as a citizen of heaven this week. Now, I said it's simple, but it's not easy. But every act of kindness, every act of decency that we live out, every time we respond in love and truth, instead of the way the world often responds, takes us one step closer to preparing our communities for Jesus' return. But the beginning, the beginning of changing our communities starts right here in my life and in your life. If Jesus Christ is not Lord, which means owner, in your life, if he's not Savior, which means that he has rescued you from sin and death, then that's where it starts. Because we won't change our families or our communities or our world until we're different from the inside out. We say here at New Life, that's simple but not easy. It's as simple as A, B, C. A is to admit. I admit that I'm a sinner. It's a hard thing to say. It means I'm not perfect. It means I'm broken. It means I don't do the stuff I'm supposed to do. But that's where it starts. And then we say, B, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. And he's Lord. Savior, rescuer, Lord, owner. We believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth 2,000 years ago. And that he's coming back to earth. We don't know when, but soon. And whenever people say soon, it's been 2,000 years. Soon from God's perspective, not our perspective. For God, 1,000 years is as a day. So Jesus has been gone a couple of days. We don't know when he's going to come back. And then see, confess. I confess that Jesus is my Savior and Lord. And I commit to living my life and following him in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we do those three simple things, our lives change. We might not feel any different. People around us at first might not notice any difference, but eventually what will happen is what happened in the second and third centuries. People will look at somebody and say, wow, <laughs> that person's so different. They don't, they don't seem like they used to. And they will say, how did that happen? And, and so what we're going to do right now is we're going to give you the opportunity to pray and ask Jesus to take over your life. Our communities will never change if we don't. In order to make a difference in the world, the change has to start with us, which means we need to prepare our hearts before we can prepare the rest of the world. And if you haven't given your heart over to Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet, today's the day. Please pray this with me. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I confess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I commit my life to Him. I commit everything to Him. And I just pray, Lord, that You would make a change in my life, that I would be a light to this world. And I just ask that You be with me today and every day, Lord. In Your name I pray.